You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this is the final episode, episode 12 of season four. Yes, this is our season finale. And yesterday was Thanksgiving, so we wish you all a very happy Thanksgiving. And today is Black Friday, which brings us to our tip of the week. It sure does. Our hashtag tip of the week this week is to opt outside. This is inspired by REI. We're big REI fans. I think they started this last year. I know we uh, talked about it last year. I think it, it was actually year. a few years a ago. A few years ago? Okay. But I could be wrong. The idea is to resist the consumerism of the day. And instead of going shopping and spending all your time inside, you can go outside and do something fun with your family. And there is so much consumerism on Black Friday. It's crazy. Yeah. I almost just want to avoid it, not even to be outside, but just to avoid all the crowds. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Not fun at all. Yeah. Can you imagine being in a mall on Black Friday? No. Can you imagine being in a mall on Thanksgiving since a lot of stores open early? Oh my gosh. Isn't that such a travesty Yeah, that people are opening the doors at 6 p.m. on Thanksgiving Day so yeah. that people can leave their families and their Thanksgiving meals around dinner tables and instead just rack up credit card debt? Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe it. But- If you're doing that though on Thanksgiving or Friday- <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> we understand. We're not saying you're you terrible your people. <laughs> no. But we ourselves will be opting outside. Yes. We are, um, yeah, planning to just spend some time together as a family at a park, doing something we haven't yeah. decided yet. It'll be fun. We went on a great hike last week, and it made us wish that we lived in a mountainous area that had lots of fertile hiking ground. Yeah. We had to drive about an hour to get <laughs> to, to any sort of hike. elevation. <laughs> it was good, though. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So we hope that you're having a great Black Friday, whatever you're doing, spending time with family. Um, we are also gearing up for Christmas and the arrival of our new baby. That's right. Little Lucy yes. is going to be her name. Yes. I don't think we've mentioned her name on the podcast before, but she'll be Little Lucy. Yeah. And we'll give you the full name when we come back for season five in January. That's right. Yeah. So this is the last podcast episode we're releasing before Christmas. And then if you've not listened to our most recent episode, episode 11, you haven't heard us talk about our plans for next year. Yeah. Season five will be a little bit different than any of the other seasons that we've done. We will be releasing podcasts once a month, probably, at the least, hopefully. Right. <laughs> and each episode will be the two of us talking about a book. Right. Because we are starting the Vernacular Podcast Book Club. And the whole reason we're doing this, as much fun as we've had doing podcast seasons the way we've done them yeah, for the past year and Yeah, with interviews and bringing in our contributors. Is that we're going to be, one, having a new baby. So we'll have a little toddler running around and a newborn to take care of. And I am going to be on the road a lot for work, unfortunately. So I'll be out of pocket a lot of the time. We'll probably do a lot of the recording, if not all of it, over Skype. And, uh, so instead of having to fit a third or fourth or fifth person into the mix, right. we're just going to try to coordinate the two of our schedules and the two of us have a conversation. Right. But we'll be doing that, like Sally said, once a month. And we have a pretty cool lineup of books that we want you to read with us. Yeah, we're really excited. We have four great books and two of them actually are listener suggestions. That's right. So the first one is one that I think I mentioned on our media podcast episode, but it's called Quiet by Susan Cain. And I think I mentioned that I was going to read it and I did and I loved it. And I've been talking about it so much to Zach that he was convinced that it should be the first book of our book club. Yes. So the first one's going to be Quiet 
The second one is going to be... A Man Called Ove, which is a novel, and it's by Frederick Bachman. And he's written a, several other, I think, bestsellers. This might even have been one of the bestsellers. But uh, this book was suggested to us, and uh, it just sounds like an, a read that would fit in with our theme of human flourishing. Yeah. And then our third book is written by somebody who's actually been on the podcast before. You may remember Emily Esfahani Smith joining us for an interview in season a year ago. two. Was it season two? Yeah, it was. I think it was last December. And she talked to us then about what meaning is and how we conceive of meaning and how it shapes our lives. And that was all in the context of her new book, which was at the time forthcoming. I guess still technically is forthcoming. I think yeah, it's, it's coming, coming out, out in January. January. So we'll be reading that. Uh, as well, the title of the book is... The Power of Meaning. Thank you, The Power of Meaning. And the subtitle is Crafting a Life That Matters. The Power so. of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. So that's going to be our third book. And then our fourth uh, book is going to be... I won't say final because we could do we could do more. Yeah, if and we're, we're just open to it. And we have other suggestions from other readers, and I want to give them a shout yeah. out in just a minute. But the fourth book is going to be Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, who's a neurosurgeon who doesn't only write on neurosurgery. He's a pretty prolific guy, a very deep thinker, and he has this book on what it means to be mortal and how we think of mortality and conceive of it and how it shapes our healthcare. So, Yeah, so we're really excited about all of those books, and we hope that you guys will be too. We'll, we'll put links to all of these books on our blog so that you can buy them or get them from your library or you get them used we wanted to also mention that don't feel like you have to buy them on Amazon. We have been huge thrift books buyers recently. Any of books that we need, we either get from the library or if we actually need a hard copy, we have been buying them from thrift books. Thriftbooks.com. Yeah, some, you can find some great deals on there. Um, so definitely. And I think if you're above $10, it's free shipping, right? Yes, yes. It's not fast shipping, but it's free shipping. Yeah. So <laughs> It takes a little while. If you're a patient person, yeah. as I try to be, but fail <laughs> to do most of the time. But you can also do my favorite thing, which is just check it out from the library. So I'm sure I'll be doing that for these I'm books a margin as well. notes guy, though, so I don't like the library option as much. Yeah, I know. Because the, the library doesn't appreciate it when I return books. That's with true. A bunch of notes scrolling. Yeah, don't margins. write in the library books. Right. But it's an option. But check out Thrift Books for sure. I also want to give a shout out to a couple of our listeners who did suggest books that we did not choose to read now. And we're certainly open to reading them at, reading them at some point in the future. If we like this book club and if it's well-received by you, our listeners, then we'll keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, even in conjunction with the normal sort of podcast episodes that we do. So uh, we did have a suggestion for Heroes and Monsters by Josh Reebok. That suggestion was from Winter. And we also had a suggestion for Hamilton, a, the, the biography by Ron Chernow. That was from Cassie. So those are both great books. And we want to read them in the future. Just don't have time for them in our four-book lineup now but we'll keep them in mind. So thanks for those suggestions. Keep them coming. And we'll look forward to reading through at least the first four books that we named. So. Yeah. And while we're giving shout outs, shout out to contributor Muriel for suggesting Being Mortal. Yes. We're really looking forward to reading that one. Yeah. So that is what's happening in January. Yes. And yeah, in the meantime, do you have any contemporary preoccupations that you want to share? Uh, you know, I've been getting into sabermetrics a lot. Oh. Sabermetrics are basically... It's basically the science of applying statistics to baseball, and our, I don't really talk about it too much on this podcast. I do sometimes, but our listeners probably don't know that I'm really passionate about baseball. One of the few thing, one of the few things that always gets me excited and happy to talk about. And I think if you listen to any of our sports episodes, they can that's probably gather true, that a little yeah. bit. <laughs> yeah, it's just such a great sport. I think it's it's chess on a diamond 
and there's just so many things to love about it. One of those things being that it's a sport complicated enough to generate its own field of statistics. I mean, you can't really say that That's for pretty other cool. sports. Yeah. So I've been kind of getting into that. I found an edX course on sabermetrics, and I'm learning how to do advanced database queries. That's to, really cool. Yeah. So I've kind of been into that, spending my spare time doing that lately. Yeah. How about you, Sally? Um, my contemporary preoccupations are multiple, but the main overarching theme is that I'm trying to do all of the things that I like to do before I have to pause them <laughs> when we have a new baby. Right. So I've been reading a ton and exercising a ton and cooking a ton. So I'm trying to fill our freezer a little bit with food and just trying to read a whole bunch of books before I have to put that on hold. Sally's just been an energizer bunny. It's really impressive. I'm I mean, really trying to just tap into every little bit of energy before I know it goes away with a new baby. Folks, I married an amazing woman. <laughs> just wanna just wanna point that out. I'm just very motivated by by this. It's I, And I'm very motivated by your motivation. <laughs> I just feel going. like at any moment at this point, we're like two weeks away, at any moment things will change drastically. It's and true. I don't want to have a book unread that I'm in the middle of. That has and... been crazy to think about that like every every day, every night we go to bed, right. I think by tomorrow morning we could be in the hospital yeah. <laughs> yeah. delivering our second <laughs> child. Pretty crazy. So. so but it's been very, very satisfying. I love finishing books and I love reading them. And I love being active, and I love cooking yummy things for our family to eat in the future. So, and you've been really doing all that at a torrid pace. So it's <laughs> impressive. So, yeah, that's my contemporary preoccupation. It's a good one. It's a very good one. Should we uh, do the lightning round? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, lightning round is going to be with Josh. We're going to call him in just a moment, and then after that, speaking of being mortal, by Atul Gawande, we're going to talk to a physician about uh, some of the interesting things that he and his family have done, and we're going to talk through some of those themes that we will explore further in the book being mortal so stick around for both of those lightning round coming up let's call josh hello hello hey. josh <laughs> hey what's going on hey man how are you doing i'm good man i'm just trying to make it over here how are you doing doing well also you ready to do a lightning round of course let's get the party started all right man <laughs> I think you'll have fun with this one. Uh, we we went over the questions over our dinner here. Uh, we're going to start with our traditional first question, which is the traditional last question for Bon Appetit's Foodcast, and that, of course, is the inspiration for our lightning round. Your first question, okay. as it is for all of our guests, butter or olive oil? Ooh. You know what? I'm going to have to say olive oil. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. we know that you've lived in multiple places, so L.A. or... Texas or Louisiana. And specifically, we know you're a transplant from Texas and Louisiana, and now you live in LA. Yeah. <laughs> so as someone who's experienced in both of these, what's your choice? Yeah. That's another tricky one. Y'all are getting me today. Um, let's see. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Texas. It's something about Texas. I can't let it go. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll follow on to that question. Uh, three options here for this lightning round question. Cajun. Tex-Mex or Mexicali cuisine? Oh, easy. Cajun. Okay. Oh, nice. all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then along the lines of food, do you prefer baking or cooking? Baking. Yeah, right. hands down baking. Everyone loves to Everyone loves to eat up all the food that I bring into the office. <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> what's, your, what's your specialty for baking? 
it would have to be these um, double chocolate brownies that I make with Ghirardelli chocolate Ooh. and some other things in there. It's super yummy. It's the way to go. Yeah, I that love brownies and Ghirardelli. <laughs> you had me at that. I'm much, I'm much more of a cook than I am a baker, but I, I do... I do uh, from time to time bake, and I, I'm totally a one-hit wonder as far as baking goes, but my chocolate chip cookies are pretty amazing. <laughs> they are. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, Josh, uh, next question. Tequila or gin? Oh, gin. Oh, gosh. Tequila just gives me bad college memories. I don't think I want to go to Europe again. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I think gin's just a, it, it, it strikes me as a more sort of grown-up, sophisticated drink. <laughs> Exactly. That's when you know you're, you've matured and you actually have adult bills. Right. <laughs> and it pairs so well with tonic. I don't think I'm there yet because I do not like gin and tonic. <laughs> you, you'll grow up eventually, oh Sally. <laughs> Thanks. Eventually you'll get there. I'll get there. Okay, this is sports. Clippers or Warriors? Ooh. I'm going to have to say the Warriors. Yes, yeah, good Clippers. choice. Mm, I don't want to bash them, so I'll just say the Warriors. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, not rooting for the hometown team there right now. But uh, I'm with you on the Warriors. I mean, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, <laughs> Splash Brothers. So much fun to watch. Exactly. All right, and then along the lines of one of our recent podcasts about media, do you like books or podcasts better? I absolutely love podcasts nice. so much more than books. Yeah, it's just something about getting, you know, kind of – take it into a different space and just listening to whatever the hosts are talking about. And you can really connect with those things, whether it's funny or serious. It's like a book, but I prefer the dialogue a lot better. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know if I'd say I like podcasts more than books, but I totally hear you. That's what I really appreciate about podcasts is yeah. the, the dialogue, the interplay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I could listen to a podcast that was just like one person monologuing. Yeah. That'd be a hard question. Oh, God. It'd be a hard question for me to answer, though. I wouldn't really want to live in a world without podcasts or books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I say, yeah, I can agree with that because I do enjoy books, but podcasts, they get me through the day a lot better than a book can because I can just listen to it. Anywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. All right. Moving to music here. Uh, one music question for you. Drake or Frank Ocean? <laughs> oh, okay. I'm going to say, see, that kind of depends on the mood. But I'm going to just go all in and say Drake. You know, Drake gives me what I really want to hear nine times out of ten. So I'll give it to Drake on that one. Good right. answer. All right. And then social media choices, Snapchat or Instagram? Instagram. Hands nice. Down. Yeah, that's the way I feel. <laughs> Sally is a big Instagrammer. Big yeah, time. I have, a, I have a, an account on Twitter and Facebook, but I never check them. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's Instagram, you can capture so much so quickly and just the interaction with everyone. I just like that so much better. Have you gotten into Instagram's new story feature that totally rips off Snapchat? Oh, yeah. It's a direct carbon copy of what Snapchat <laughs> is. I, uh, I do not like it at all. I wish they just got rid of that or made it an option for yeah. you if you wanted to have it. Yeah, I think it's annoying how every time you open Instagram, it's right there in front of you, and it's it's always begging you to make your story, yeah. your story. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I don't think I've ever done it before. I don't know about you guys, but I've never used that No, neither yet. have I, and I kind of just ignore it. <laughs> yeah. All right, Josh, we're going to move on to our last few questions here. Uh, Thanksgiving-themed, since Thanksgiving right around the corner. So first question, mm -hmm. turkey or ham? 
Oh, turkey. Yeah. My family loves to do like Cajun turkeys or fried turkeys. Wow. It's like an array of different types of turkey in my household in Louisiana. So it's, yeah, it's all about the turkey. The ham is there, but everyone comes to the turkey. So I did not grow up in the South, but my dad loved making fried turkeys when I was growing up. And it's the, it's the best way to bake a turkey. It's so good. It really is. And it's the best way to go into a right after. (laughs) Nice. Okay. And then do you like white potatoes, mashed potatoes, I mean, as being one thing, or sweet potatoes? Sweet potatoes. All right. I can do so much more potatoes, yeah. Yeah. I do like sweet potatoes better. I think more for the nutritional content than (laughs) as compared to white potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right final question uh of the lightning round here for thanksgiving cranberry relish sweet or sour Ooh, ooh. can we can we have like a happy medium and say kind of sweet kind of sour does that work <laughs> i will accept I that i will accept that answer yes <laughs> for your last answer you can pick something in between <laughs> sweet and sour yeah, yeah i like something just a little bit of both i think that makes that it tartness. Makes it all come together. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we hope you get all of those things at your Thanksgiving this week. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving to you and to all of our listeners out there. Hopefully, it's a good one. Josh, thanks so much for coming on to join us for the lightning round. Hey, no problem, man. You guys take care and you guys have a happy Thanksgiving as well. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We're very excited for this next guest. Joining us now is Matthew Loftus, who has uh, had a brief but very interesting career in medicine so far, and we're going to hear all about that career. He's recently returned with his wife, Maggie, and their kids from Ye, South Sudan, which is a small, well, I think it's, you you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but sort of small to medium-sized city uh, in South in southern South Sudan, close to the borders of Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, He and his family left there because South Sudan got a little dicey, politically speaking, uh, over the past summer, and they're now uh, safely in the United States. Uh, But we're going to talk with them about their plans, why they went to South Sudan in the first place, what it was like there, what they hope to do in the future, and even before that, uh, from his time in medical school in Baltimore. So, Matthew, thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. So after this exciting hook where I talked about your time in South Sudan and uh, how you, you recently escaped with your lives, um, maybe a little bit dramatic there, uh, let's, let's back up uh, to, I don't know, maybe right as you were finishing med school and contemplating a move to South Sudan with your family. Why did you decide to go to South Sudan uh, instead of practicing medicine here? And then talk us through some of the unexpected challenges you faced while you were living there. Yeah, thanks. Um I, we moved there, uh, I guess, because the most important reason is that we felt called there. Um, when I was about 17, I felt called to some sort of like cross-cultural ministry. And then over the years that mm-hmm. got confirmed, um, uh, slowly in greater, like more clarified stages, um, to, uh, when to do medical missions and then to do, um, medical education as part of it. So, um, when we started looking around at places that were doing medical education, um, in places of great need, 
uh, overseas, we <clears throat> uh, looked at a couple different hospitals and then we went and visited uh, two of them. And uh, this was the one that made the best sense for our family. But um, yeah, I mean, I just, I felt called from God to um, go someplace where other people weren't going and where there was um, a great need and try to train health professionals to um, do health work and disciple and plant churches. Now, I know that you've also written about these experiences on your, your, your site. You and your wife, Maggie, both have done this. So for our listeners, if you want to check out more of this, go to matthewandmaggie.org. And Matthew's also written quite a bit uh, elsewhere uh, for places like Christianity Today, Christianity Today, Christ and Culture, and several other outlets. So if you want to uh, follow him on Twitter, I think uh, your handle is just at Matthew Loftus. Is that right, Matthew? Uh, I think there's a there's an underscore in between the Matthew and the Loftus. Matthew yeah. underscore Loftus. Okay, so yep. yeah, follow him there. But Matthew, talk us through what it was like to live in South Sudan. You, you were there for I think nine months. Uh, so yeah. so what was it like practicing medicine in a place uh, that is radically different from where you grew up in America? And bringing your family with you. Yeah, it was. Um, well, it was different. Um, although it's funny because there's some things that are completely universal across the world when it comes to practicing medicine, you know, um, people are always complaining about the food, um, different, uh, parts of the staff are always complaining about other, you know, it's the same thing in America. You have clinical staff that are complaining. The nurses don't follow their orders. The nurses are complaining that, you know, the clinical staff don't do the X, Y, and Z. It's the exact same thing that I saw in residency. Um, as over there. So there, you know, so it's funny how some things were the same and other things were vastly different. Um, you know, there was a much, uh, there were definitely some challenges in terms of, uh, you know, like there was only, uh, the need was huge and there was only so much time in the day and there was only so much, uh, physical and emotional energy that, uh, any one person could give. So we were always trying to think about, how to be sustainable uh, in what we did, uh, which is part of why we really focused heavily on um, education. Um, but then, even within education, you know, it was it was challenging to move from a the like the medical education system that I learned in, uh, which tended to be you know has a lot of like Socratic dialogue and back and forth, and you you know. You, you get the most out of it when you are like asking the most questions and being, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, sometimes being really hard on people. Uh, like that's, that's how I trained. Right. And then, but in another culture that breaks some of the cultural rules about the way that, um, people in power relate to other people, you know, who are below them. Um, and there were these, constantly shifting dynamics of uh, figuring out, okay, how do I teach well in a way that people will understand because my way, just because the way that I learned worked for me and it works for other Western people, it's not necessarily going to work in that environment. Um, you know, and there were obviously a lot of different things, you know, there was a different set of clinical things I had to get used to working with very few labs and, um, you know, just the resources that you're depending on, you know, over, uh, over there, your social work department was the hospital chaplain. <laughs> um, so they were the chaplains and they were the social work department. 
Um, and they were also sort of, and you also kind of counted them on them to figure out what was going on with families and um, do background investigation into, you know, something, if a, there was sort of a suspicious case where, um, you know, because uh, you, you didn't have the same resources and civil justice institutions backing you up. So, um, yeah, no, it was, it was really wild uh, and different, but. Did you find that just by virtue of, for lack of a better word, scarcity, you were faced with Mm -hmm. interesting ethical dilemmas that you may not have been in a place that had more plentiful medical equipment? I mean, even just laboratory equipment for testing, did you have to make decisions based on your lack of resources that affected people's lives more than you would have if you were a doctor in, in an American hospital? Oh, definitely, definitely. And, um, you know, I, the positive spin we tried to put on it was that that was an opportunity to teach people and um, try to illuminate some of the principles that we use in uh, that guide us um, clinicians and how we serve our patients. But uh, there were definitely hard times when it was, you know, when we said, well, we have <clears throat> seven doses of this one medication left. Uh, so what, which patients are going to get them? Right. Um, cause you need, you know, you need three doses. So you've, you got seven. So that means you get two patients. So like the really, really, really sick patients, um, who are probably, you you say well you have to assess and say is this patient going to die anyway right um with with the medication would the patient likely die with the medication so maybe we should save it for someone who is like very sick but not but could be already, saved. like in total extremists exactly right. yeah stuff like that um yeah and then just having to make decisions where you you know you, you don't have lab testing and so Another really common one that we faced was whether or not we, we would refer someone because um, that meant going to the capital or going to another country, you know, going to Uganda right. and saying, well, we think it's this. And if it is this, then you could get it fixed. But if we're wrong, you know, you might make a, a thousand mile journey for no particular to bankrupt you know, for something you. that can't be fixed. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. So. And tell us more about your wife, Maggie. Did she, was she, is she also in the medical field or did she have a career that she had to move to South Sudan? How was that transition for her? Yeah. Um, so she's a nurse. And so one day a week she would watch the kids and, or that, sorry, I would watch the kids and she would go to work. And I mean, there were also times when I would round at the hospital in the morning and she has a lot more experience in breastfeeding and lactation and postpartum care. Uh, that was what she did here in the States. And so she, so there'd be times that I'd go to work in the morning and I'd come back and say, you know, Hey honey, I have this one patient. She's really, I really don't know what to do with her. Um, will you go and assess? And my wife being as modest as she is would say, Oh, I don't know what I can do. And then, (laughs) you know, three hours later, she'd come back with this very detailed plan. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. So, um, there was, good teamwork there and her i mean her her primary role at both in the states and in south sudan was raising our kids and keeping the home and cooking and um hanging out with um just people around us so um that was yeah that that transition was a little more seamless than 
than mine in terms of like day-to-day work. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, well, well go, to, oh, go ahead. <laughs> going back to your point about sort of the opportunity that you had to share your uh, practice as a doctor, since you had scarce resources, you had to sort of share clinical practices and best practices with the people you were teaching there. We've talked a lot on this podcast about various medical issues and bioethics. And a lot of times those conversations have come back to what is the purpose of medicine? And I think that's sort of the question you have to answer to get to any bioethical issue. So in Mm -hmm. in your opinion, as a practitioner, what is the purpose of medicine? What's the end of medicine? Um, I'd say the end of medicine is to do whatever is within your power and the power of the person that you're working with to be healthy. Um, But I think we also have to think about what health is uh, because for I think most people would agree on that definition of medicine, uh, but they would um, either define health as sort of everything in your body is working okay, um, or I think what ends up happening a lot of times in a lot of medical settings is there's a number on this lab test that's wrong, and we need to fix that number and make the number right. Um, and that's really horrifically reductionistic and ends up um, doing a lot of bad things, not only for bodies, but also for souls and minds. And so I think we have to think about health as wholeness and think about that wholeness in the body, but also in the mind and in um, emotions and in uh, the spirit. I think that um, helping people to achieve that wholeness it, you know, because there's almost nothing that uh, doesn't affect one's physical health um, and mental health. And so medicine is always trying to find ways to help people do what they need to do for themselves and adding, you know, whatever drugs or tests or treatments that sort of are in that gap between people's own ability to improve themselves, you know, improve their own health and uh, the place that they want to be. Uh, So, but I think we also have to think about, you know, what are our bodies for? Um, And I, I do think very strongly that bodies are ultimately for worshiping God and for loving other people. And so um, I think medicine is a lot of that is about helping people, you know, getting people to a point where either they're going to be worshiping and loving Uh, for a longer time on earth or they are more capable of doing those things um, than they would have been without um, some kind of medical intervention. So this is really interesting. I hear implicit in your description of what it means to be a healthy, we'll say flourishing human person, that Mm -hmm. it's possible for someone to have a terminal illness and be dying but still be healthy from a holistic standpoint. So they might have the lab results that do not read what the lab results of a person who has a normal lifespan would read. They have lab results that show a terminal illness and yet they're still healthy. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, there's always this, there's a tension in all of us because we're all, you know, we're all going to die. John Foreman says we're all terminal. Um, uh, but, um, I, I think that, 
for each individual, especially the older that we get and the further out in the, you know, the, if you look across the human race and across the world, like home helping, you know, a mother in South Sudan achieve wholeness um, and health in her life is going to look very different um, than it is for a kid in uh, the suburbs of Baltimore. Um, and so being aware of that, of the context then, you know, so in the context of a terminal illness that you can't change, um, in the context of being in a war-torn nation that you can't change, um, you have to do the very best with what you can. And I think that there are, you know, so there are ways in which you can have a terminal illness and uh, be uh, very unwhole in your mind and spirit. Uh, and, you know, and, and there are ways, you know, where it's a big conversation, I think, in regards to the way that we have end of life care uh, in the West that um, really just racks up these huge medical bills without really helping people <clears throat> feel more whole um, or live uh, the rest of their lives in uh, with you know, meaningful peace and whatnot. Um, so I want to unpack this a little bit yeah. because some of the yeah. things you're saying about uh, sort of spiritual and mental wellness bring to yeah. mind alternative medicine because it seems like that's what mm -hmm. a lot of alternative medicine tries to do. And much of modern medicine, and by modern I really mean mm -hmm. Western medicine, I think yeah. I think sort of has a sort of snooty approach towards alternative medicine, right? These are the things that are sort of these are not peer reviewed and these are not rigorously repeatable. Right. Um, so my first question to you is, as a doctor, how do you actually embrace approaches that emphasize mind and spirit wellness? And then the second question we can get to after that is, I want to hear you talk a little bit more about end of life care and what's wrong with end of life care in the U.S. Yeah, so um, I think to answer your first question, you really just got to ask the patient um, and you have to leave space in your conversations for the patient to talk and you have to ask people questions about what do they value, what is important to them, what works for them. Um, you know, I, I am obviously a great believer in you know, using evidence-based medicine and, and doing rigorous scientific studies. But I think we have to accept <clears throat> that the number of things which evidence-based medicine can tell us is, is very, very small relative to the number of problems that human beings have uh, that present as, but, you know, even within the realm of physical complaints within the body, much less anything else that touches on uh, a person's health. Right. And so if we, you know, if we can get the evidence, you know, if we can say, this is what the evidence says about these things and kind of harp on, but let, let our focus of the, the scientific inquiry and the lab testing and those kinds of things really be focused on the evidence, what the evidence-based stuff can say, and then be open as far as the rest. Um, obviously, you know, there's, um, you know, you got to be careful because, you know, your insurance company, you may not be able to convince the insurance company to uh, pay for, you know, these uh, magic um, juice cleanse things or what have you. Um, and if you are constantly chasing after the juice cleanse, uh, that may not, you know, that may be indicative of something else that's going on in your life. 
um, even if you're sure that the juice cleanse works. Um, but I think we have to listen to the patient. We have to let science do what science can do. And then um, I think we have to be, you know, connected to patients in their communities and, you know, thinking about all the other, you know, asking them about all the other things that impact their health, their relationships to their families, the um, institutions that they're involved in, um, their work and their community, their the physical spaces they live in, all these other things. Um, I think we've got to bring into the conversation about health. So and then, then the, the second question is, yeah, yeah the second question Sorry, basically what, you know, what you talked about problems in the way we approach end of life care. And I want to hear you talk a little bit more about that. And maybe drawing from your experience in South Sudan, I'm specifically curious to know whether or not people in South Sudan in your experience were more comfortable with death than they are in the U.S. And if so, how that affected your, your care for, for patients there. I, I was looking up some statistics and the, just a, you know, uh, one measure of mortality there and here and anywhere is infant mortality. But in South Sudan, it's around mm -hmm. 65 deaths per 1,000 births. In the yeah. U.S., that number is about six per 1,000 births. So, mm -hmm. again, one measure of mortality. But I think you see the same story in terms of the difference between the U.S. and a place like South Sudan. People die here in the U.S. a lot less. I mean, the death rate might be the same or, or right. roughly the same. But people die from common diseases in a place like South Sudan much less than they do in the U.S. So death is, I think, just much more commonplace. And if that's the mm -hmm. case, if you agree with that, did that affect how your patients viewed death and how they approached death and were prepared for it? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that the just the frequency of death, you know, it could – it it was – I would say the struggle – the struggle that we have in the U.S. is a, is in playing God and thinking that we um, should resist death to um, everything. We should do everything within our power to resist death um, without thinking about how to die well. Um, and so this leads to, you know, these prolonged ICU stays and, you know, people who um, – are you know getting um, these very um, expensive and difficult and painful treatments that um, don't improve their quality of life? Don't help them to you know, like I said, don't help them to feel or be um, or whole as people. Um, it just sort of keeps keeps them breathing, um, and and so that um, I think. Instead of thinking about how do we die well, what do we want to do um, with our lives, and those kinds of things, we're just like, well, just got to keep them alive, keep them alive. Um, and I, I don't think that's very holistic. Um, it's almost the opposite problem. Um, and this is a thing that I think even we as practitioners would struggle with sometimes. Um, and definitely patience is a certain degree of fatalism about death because death was so common there. Right. Um, that it's it it took um took you know so initially you or you there's a certain amount of shock of like oh my because i mean for me personally in my um training so since i graduated from medical school and did residency and then worked in practice for a year before we went i'd never seen a child die um but you know we would like sometimes we would have 
multiple children die in a single day um, just because of how late they presented. You know, the roads are bad. They, um, you know, malaria can take kids down really, really quickly, especially if there's malnutrition or something else going on. Um, and so there's sort of this initial shock and emotional upheaval. Um, but then, you know, after that happens a couple days in a row, um, then you start to get really numb and, and you can, your heart can become calloused to, you know, a, a child dying, which is a really, uh, sad thing to say, but it's, it, you know, like everyone struggles with it. And, you know, I would like definitely like family, like, so families would have, um, these really pronounced, um, rituals of, of mourning together. Um, and we could hear like our houses were just, you know, on the other side of the fence from the hospital. So we could hear, um, these mothers wailing in the middle of the night when their kids died. And, um, so, so there was still definitely that, but even, but sometimes even, uh, before that, uh, if you had someone that was sick and not really getting better, you could all, you could sometimes see that people were just sort of tuning out, um, and, um, just kind of, kind of fatalistic about it. Um, you know, and that's, a, that's a hard line to walk, especially when it comes clothed in Christian language of, well, you know, God's in charge. And, right. Uh, but it's still definitely a, a struggle, I think, um, to wrestle with, like, how much do you, you know, allow yourself to continue to be moved, um, by the need and by the sorrow, um, but also like not completely falling apart so that you can go on and keep doing your job every day and, you know, or in the case of, you know, the families who lost children, like being able to take care of their other kids and, and fulfill their other responsibilities. To go back to a previous comment that you made, what could you spell out a little bit more about what it means to die well, in your opinion? Because for some people, I think that would be an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I mean, I think that means um, accepting that death is inevitable. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I think the best way to die well involves being a Christian and, and trusting that, um, death is not the end. It is, it does not have the final word in our lives. Um, and that, um, death is part of our, um, <clears throat> falling in the footsteps of Jesus, uh, who was resurrected and, and trusting that we will be resurrected in whatever way. And that even that, um, you know, and this is a big theological question that has yet to be, I think, fully worked out. But, you know, even thinking about, like, this body that I have um, is somehow going to be transformed. Um, and it's that whatever it will become is as different from this body as a uh, full-grown plant is to a seed. But it's going to happen. And so um, there's still something sacred and precious about the body that I have that's dying. Um, and maybe I shouldn't, um, shouldn't be flogging this body with fluids and a ventilator and dialysis and all these other things that, um, overemphasize sort of the you know, just keeping it breathing, um, instead of preparing myself and my, you know, my mind and soul for, um, that next step. Um, 
So it's 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 very complicated. And again, I think it goes back to wholeness. Like, what is you know, because because our even trying to achieve wholeness, I think is is always going to be imperfect in this life because of the realities of sin and the brokenness of our bodies. Um, and so medicine is always trying to approximate um, the best, the closest thing to wholeness that we have. Um, but I think uh, as we, again, it's, you know, about anticipating, um, anticipating resurrection and um, savoring um, the good uh, that you have in life now to the best of your ability and, and sort of balancing like, well, you know, if I take this medicine, then I'm going to feel nauseous and sleepy all day. Uh, but if I take that medicine, you know, I, I could probably still, you know, hang out with people a little bit, even if it's may, maybe not be as effective. Um, you know, so does that, yeah, no, question? that's really, that's the, that's yeah. really helpful. Um, as Zach mentioned in his introduction, you attended medical school in Baltimore, and mm -hmm. you guys lived in uh, an economically depressed part of the city. Why? Mm -hmm. Why didn't you stay there to work as a doctor and to reach people who who need, you know, expert medical care and so forth? Um, I mean, part of it, there's a lot of <laughs> different answers to that. Um, I think the biggest one is just again the calling of like, you know. 10 years before we'd felt called more to the overseas. And, um, there's a lot, um, it, it, there's definitely some unique, um, and pressing needs in places like Baltimore. Um, but it's, it's just not the same, you know, there aren't children dying, um, every night of completely preventable diseases in the same numbers. Um, as they are in places like South Sudan and there, you know, there are medical providers, um, who could do it, you know, in places like West Baltimore. And, um, actually one of the encouraging things in sort of being involved in the church communities is talking to people who did that, um, 20 years ago and helped to advocate for, you know, a better structure. So that way there was, there were more practitioners who were working there than there were, um, when they had started. Um, so, um, I mean, it's, it's different needs and different callings. And I, um, you know, I think that, um, yeah, obviously we, we have no idea what is going on in our lives or, uh, what's what, you know, we, we have a few ideas of what's next for us, but, um, you know, we could very well, you know, end up being called <laughs> to, uh, to stay in West Baltimore at some point, um, in our lives, depending on just what. Uh, what happens in different circumstances. So, um, well, speaking of Baltimore, yeah, of yeah. Uh, speaking of Baltimore, you were there in the aftermath of the Freddie Gray death yes. when the city erupted in riots and there was a lot of racial tension. And since then, Baltimore has really probably been the sort of poster child, maybe along with Ferguson, Missouri, the poster child for the state of race relations in America. And you wrote yeah. about this quite a bit at the time of uh, Freddie Gray's death and in the aftermath. And one of the themes yeah. that you repeatedly hit on was how the church can have the, the the sort of institutional Christian church can have a role in addressing structural racism. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think that the church is the institution that's most uniquely suited for addressing the work. And um, I mean, it's very sad that the church often doesn't and hasn't. Um, but uh, I think the most important thing that, that churches can do are to um, listen to, appreciate, amplify the work of their brothers and sisters who um, are non-white. So I'm, I guess I'm speaking about the majority white church. Um, and I think that, um, there are just so, um, you know, there's so many rich resources, um, within a variety of, um, Christian traditions and, um, a lot of, um, great things that, um, have been, uh, written and said that, are, you know, addressing the realities of structural racism and um, history. And so um, I think the first step is is listening to that and understanding that and amplifying that and communicating that um, to an audience that um, might uh, have political or economic incentives, you know, that with without the Christian faith in their life, you know, white people who would otherwise be um, oblivious or indifferent um, to those needs and realities. Uh, so I think that's kind of the first step. And then I think the next step is is partnering and supporting because um, you know there's a there are a lot of um, people um, again within strong Christian communities in a variety of Christian traditions um, who are uh, working to um, rectify the injustices that racism um, has helped to produce in America. And uh, again, the church is on the front lines in so many places. And, um, but, you know, they need, um, financial support. They need people to come work alongside them. Um, they need, um, people to advocate for different things and at the political level. And <clears throat> so I think that the church, um, can do, can, you know, listen, amplify and support. Um, and I think once it, you know, turns its attention to those things, um, I think we could see uh, a lot of healing and um, a lot of grace. And uh, I think we could see some, you know, there's obviously going to be a lot of repentance mixed in there for the ways in which the church has been complicit um, in structural racism over the years. Um, but that's, you know, uh, that's, that's where you start. Um, and I think that there's a, so much potential uh, for for churches to uh, be binding up these wounds. No, I think you've hit the nail on the head without denying the fact that the church has, in many instances, perpetuated or exacerbated structural racism. It's also clear that churches are some of the most important civic institutions in America. And strengthening, yeah. strengthening those is a huge first step to ameliorating the divide between races. I mean, it's it's not lost on me that you know, I've been to Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta where Martin Luther King Jr. grew up, and I've been to Dexter Avenue where he was a pastor when he when he led the uh, Montgomery bus boycott and later the civil rights movement. I mean, it was churches that started uh, overcoming the great divide that once was, and it's 
churches, I think, that can lead the charge in overcoming the divide that still is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's, I mean, it's, it's hard work. Like, I don't know, one of the things that strikes me, you just about living and working in Sandtown, living and working in South Sudan, like all the easy things have been taken. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's going to take sacrifice and it's going to take listening. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just going to take a lot of work. So, um, people have to be ready for that. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, the church is nothing if not, um, a body that, uh, identifies with a, a suffering and sacrificial savior. So as a final question before we wrap up, um, mm-hmm. what, what are your plans for the future? As far as you know, what, what is next for your family? So, uh, we're going to have a baby, uh, and congrats. Oh, congratulations. That's exciting. Excited about. Yeah. So is, it, is this number um, three? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Congrats. Yep. So we're going to have a, yeah, so we'll have a baby in February and then we'll, um, reevaluate our plans after that. Um, we're, you know, we're, we're still hoping, um, and praying that, um, there will be peace in South Sudan, that we can, uh, return to the hospital and, um, that, you know, the patient population will come back, that, um, the staff will come back and that we can all, uh, work together and be doing the work that, um, we had signed up to do. Um, but if not, then, uh, we're also very, um, open to and, and praying about, you know, a lot of the, uh, people of Ye fled across the border to northern Uganda and are in refugee camps. And so um, we're just thinking about how we might be able to serve them there. So That's great. Well, we really have appreciated your time and thanks for all of your thoughtful answers and yeah, just for taking the time to talk with us tonight. And for our listeners who do want to read more about Matthew and Maggie and the work they've done in South Sudan and the work they continue to do here, check out their website, like I mentioned, matthewandmaggie.org, or you can follow Matthew on Twitter at Matthew underscore Loftus. Very important to get the underscore. (laughs) Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you so much for having me. We're back to wrap things up of this season finale episode of season four. Can't believe we've already had four seasons. It's crazy. It's crazy. I'm really excited about season five, though. So uh, don't don't miss us too much while we're on our break in December. And find other podcasts to listen to, but don't find other podcasts that you will listen to instead of this one when we come back in January. (laughs) Yeah, make sure you save a little place for us in your schedule. (laughs) (laughs) And in the meantime, you can get ready for the book club by reading Susan Cain's Quiet. Yes, you can get ready for any of the other books in the book club or Quiet by going to our blog, blog blog.vernacularpodcast.com, and checking out the blog post that accompanies this episode in it. Sally has uh, directed you to all the the Amazon links for each of those books, so you can check them out there. We also encourage you to go on ThriftBooks because it's a great way to save money. Or visit your local library. Or that. Also good. (laughs) Also, in the meantime, have a very Merry Christmas. And uh, stay warm if you are in cold places of the country. Yeah. And stay in touch with us. You can follow us on Twitter at VernacularPod or at Zach Crippen at SF Crippen for me and Sally, respectively. You can also find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash VernacularPodcast. And as always, you can check out our website, VernacularPodcast.com. Yeah, I think that's it. All right. Season four, wrapping it up here. Crazy. For Vernacular (laughs) Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.
and I'm by your side.